0: Ha, <laughs> say not here. <laughs> True, and which is false? True, false. (laughs) Kept for the quiz. Number two, the sun holds the earth in orbit by
1: gravity.
0: It will rain one. tomorrow. Other important. None of the above. What? Maybe. Oh, I see. Yeah. Parks are held together by gluons. Okay, I'm not going to give the answers to the end of the period. That's another trick. That's right. Always give the test back at the end of the period. college are interested in the grade, <clears throat> in the grade, not in the subject. In high school, it's about 50-50, but the difference in high school is if the kid doesn't get it, it's the teacher's fault. In college, if you don't get it, it's your fault. That's the one advantage in college, there are no PTA meetings. <laughs> I had a classmate who forced went to an ordinance to teach because he hated PTA. That's true. That's wild. And and grade school, if the kid doesn't get it, it's all the teachers' fault, not just 100 percent That's why teaching from first grade through high school through college, it gets easier and easier. The hardest job is down there in the grades. I'll tell you that from experience, and I couldn't take it when I went to high school. And then as you get older, it gets the easiest stuff in college have to know more and do less in college, and it's never your fault. Well, I didn't intend to put that, (laughs) take that off that recorder. Erase that part. (laughs) Erase that because that gets back to my department chairman. I'm done. Now, we will have the answers to this quiz, and you always tell a student, now let me know five minutes before the period is over, then at least he's doing something constructive. But hopefully, by the time the period is over, you'll know the answers to these questions. And you can change your answers without penalty. And we'll take the quiz post-test, we'll test and post-test. Now, every good sermon and lesson is divided into four parts. There used to be three when I was in congregation class and in inflation. We have four parts we have a good sermon. And the first one is, I'm just going to have more blackboard here, but I'll write it underneath smaller letters. It's always good, I think, to tell your class ahead of time how many things you're going to talk about that day. And then all kind of half-divide period, It's parts. At least I, when I listen to the sermon and hear the person say, fifthly, I wish you would tell me whether it's going to be 31 or how many, so we know what rainforest. Well, you can have four parts. And the first part is that modern science, and remember what the topic of this business is fact and theory. We want to find out what these words mean and how to teach them and how religion fits into our science teaching. People ask me, what? Ha ha, usually in jest they say, what is Christian physics?
1: In other words, why
0: am I teaching physics in a Christian school and why is my name in a a physics textbook as a Christian teacher? And long ago I made up an answer to this that usually stops them cold. I tell them physics, Christian physics, is physics taught by a
1: Christian. The physics is just
0: as good as anybody else's physics, but it's taught by a Christian because he can tell them more than you can if you're not a Christian. Because the law prevents it. And that usually stops at cold. And I've had people write back and say, I've been thinking about that. Uh, I think I'd like to teach in a school like that. So how do you teach science? in a Lutheran school, you teach it as good as everybody else, as a Christian. I've asked scientists in different countries whether a Christian is a better scientist than a non-Christian. I asked the head of IBM, if you had a choice between two scientists who have the same qualifications, would you hire the Christian or the non-Christian? See, now we have the situation is a Christian more heavenly, you know, in the science and not as good in the laboratory? And you know what the head of research of IBM said? It's all in this book up here. You can buy it later. Anderson, up in Harris, New York, said, I would hire the Christian. And he's not a Christian. And I said, Why? And he said, Because the Christian is more honest
1: he reports what he did in the
0: laboratory, I can believe him. If another guy reports something, maybe or not, maybe he didn't do it. Think about that. The science you teach in the Lutheran school ought to be more honest, because you are dedicated to the truth, and that's not easy. And that's what this is talking about. Truth has two aspects, fact and theory. Both are true. Pilate said, what is truth? I've heard sermons where they said, well, he was being facetious. Ha, ha, what's truth? Others say, no, oh, he was a sophist, with furrowed brow. Or maybe he meant, what is truth? Well, science is concerned with truth. And unfortunately,
1: not many
0: textbooks teach it that way. Which is exactly, well not exactly, but to a great extent why I got into textbook writing. Because not very many science textbooks are written correctly.
1: And I sent that to a salesman 20 years ago,
0: and he said, if you think you're so good, why don't you write one? And I've been doing that ever since. Fortunately, the Lord had his hand in this for sure. It turned out well. writing is a couple of things. I even had to call the salesman and said, bring mine over here. I'm going to be talking today. He wasn't even going to come. But it's been accepted, and I've even had people in public schools who use it, and most people use it, of course, say, I see what you're saying in Chapter 1. In Chapter 1, I try to tell the student what is truth, and how do you learn it, and what kind of truth do you get out of science. And to make real sure, at least as sure as I could, that I was representing the scientific community, I went out and talked to scientists in various countries. Again, the Lord was visit, he said to a man who came to me, use whatever money you need and go where you want. Ended up in 13 countries. To find out if the truth about science that I'm teaching is the truth that these scientists are practicing. And what I have gleaned from that, I'd like to share with you today and get your reaction to it. Number one. Science, we're not talking about religion in here, now this session, that was the last one.
1: Science was invented.
0: People are not born with science. It has to be learned. The word science means knowledge. In German, Wissenschaft. Sounds much more impressive to be a German scientist because then you're a Wissenschaftler. In English, you're just a scientist. And in fact, with a degree in Germany, they say it much longer than they do in this country. You're a PhD in Germany, you're a Herr Professor Doctor. Or here, you're just a doctor, and people call you with an I saw a good. The New York Times, or someplace, last week, where a teacher's on the phone, and the guy called him, and he said, "No, I do not make house calls. Just read two chapters and call me in the morning."
1: Mm.
0: I thought it was funnier than that. <laughs> <laughs> but we are doctors. We're doctors of teaching. There's something wrong with me. I was teaching. It had to be invented. Well, the word science. Then, does not mean all knowledge. A, kid of all, a science book should not get the impression that this is all knowledge. It's a certain kind of knowledge. It does not include everything. In fact, it is only knowledge that can be arrived at in a certain way. And if it cannot be arrived at in a certain way, then it does not belong to the field of science. There are many things that cannot be discussed scientifically. Now before we get into that aspect of which kind of truth does science include, let's see when it was invented, and who invented it, and why. When we talk about science today, we're, in our text, Science 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, 9, 10, We refer invariably, refer invariably to the science that came out of the Protestant Reformation. It took me a long time to realize this, studying the history of science and the lives of scientists in the past. Modern science is a product of the Reformation of Martin Luther. I'm not saying that only because in the Lutheran conference I say this in my college classroom. Because up to the time of Luther, knowledge was arrived at by deduction. In other words, if you wanted to know what was true, even in the universe, you looked it up. And if Aristotle said it was true, or Aristarchus, or someone else of the ancients whom the Church had decreed as correct then it was true. But when Luther and other reformers before and after his time challenged the right of the church to dictate truth in all areas of life, then people dared to do things themselves and to think things that the authorities of the past, Aristotle and others, had said otherwise. And that took great courage. And that is exactly why modern science was born in the northern European countries where the Reformation flourished. And modern science did not flourish in Italy and the countries where the church still had absolute control. Galileo was born in the wrong country. If Galileo had lived in England, he would have discovered gravity or, he probably even did discover it, and it was destroyed, and he was placed under house arrest for the rest of his life for believing that the earth moved. That was his crime,
1: to believe
0: that the earth moved, and he had to get on his hands and knees in front of the altar and say, I repent that the earth moves. So they would give him communion. And the reporter sitting there heard him say as he got up off his knees, I still think (laughs) Newton probably got most of his ideas from Galileo and was free to publish them. But the man who was responsible more than anybody else for the birth of modern science was Francis Bacon in 1620. When we talk today about how scientists do their work, we're talking about the principles that were laid down in Bacon's book of 1620 called Novo Organum*, the new works. In Novo Morgano, Francis Bacon pulled together, he was an English philosopher, the thinking that was brewing in the Reformation now for a hundred years, in which people dared to say that if you want to know what's true, try it out, like Carashiola says.
1: Check it out.
0: That was a completely new concept. Find out the truth by trying it. And as a result, we've got laboratories all over the world. The idea of a laboratory is to check out what you think is true. Now, a no, little no story just crossed my mind I think I should share it. I don't know if this is true, this came from the time of the Reformation. There's a story that the of Luther, theologians were sitting in a room pontificating over the universe. And they have to be in the field of biology. And the theologians were discussing the question, how many teeth does a horse have? And they had the works of the fathers and of Aristotle, and were checking and quoting And they could not arrive at a conclusion.
1: And a little page boy came in with a
0: pitcher of water, and he heard them talking about this. And he poked one of them and said, pardon me. If you're trying to find out how many teeth a horse has, why don't you bring a horse in here and count it? And he was thrown out of the room for diverting the scholarly discussion. Because to have to resort to an experiment, when by deduction we should be able to figure out how many teeth a horse has, was very humiliating.
1: Francis Bacon raised the experiment
0: to the dignity of the authority. And he made up what is today described in every textbook as the scientific method. Now, what is the scientific method? I asked every scientist in this book what is the scientific method? German and English and I wish I could talk French in Paris I had an appointment but I didn't talk French at all. And that man could speak English. But since I couldn't talk French, he just took a day day to discuss the question. Now that says something about him, I want not to discuss. But, the inescapable conclusion that I came to is that there is no such thing as writing down the steps of the scientific method. Because the scientific method is not a bunch of steps. Einstein said, science is what scientists do. If
1: you
0: want to know what science is, follow a scientist around and see what he does. That's a very profound remark, because a lot of things that a scientist does during the day are not very scientific. In fact, it is often impossible to tell when a person is doing his science and when he's doing something unscientific.
1: We decided in
0: 1920 in this country, it we'll be listed for courses children have to learn, that we can subdivide people. This period biology. This period math. This period social studies. As though a person could take his social studies grade, and land him in this chair, and forget that he's a person, that he has problems, that his girlfriend all him off. All these things he shouldn't remember that because now he's in science. Injustice we've done in teaching science in this country is to teach that there is such a thing as pure science and that it is possible for a person to be absolutely scientific. We're just now beginning to learn that scientists are people and that when you write about Newton and Galileo and Pasteur and the others, you had better mention what kind of they were. Otherwise, what are you teaching the child? That this was some kind of strange person who all day long just thought objective truths about petrials. No.
1: He had feelings
0: and prejudices.
1: And these come out
0: in his work. How objective do you suppose? The laboratory work of the scientist is, If he gets paid by the American Tobacco Company and he's asked Find out whether cigarettes cause cancer. Now this guy has a PhD and he's objective to the extreme, right? No, he cannot, even if he'd like to be, be objective doing that work. In fact, nobody on earth is ever completely objective. And the sooner we tell kids this the better they'll like science. Because it's getting to have the reputation that it's a dead subject, that you never have any feelings in there, that you learn formulas and you answer tests and they're right or wrong. Now having said that, I will put down the steps of the scientific method <laughs> because you've got to give a quiz. You simply cannot give a quiz on feelings the last edition of our physics text was submitted to a professor of reading at the University of Louisiana. And he went through and counted the number of letters in a word and the number of words in a sentence and came out with the result that it has a certain reading level. How accurate is that? Well, it's not very accurate. In fact, you work for years in a book and this guy reads 10 sentences and ranks the book. Or a certain reading level. That's right. He came. came up and said, "This is too difficult. No words should ever be more than so many letters at all." You see, the difficulty is that in a science book and in every other book, you're trying to put definitions of things that cannot be defined. There are two ways to define a word. One is like the dictionary: gravity that which exerts gravitation. (laughs) So you look up gravitation. Guess what? See gravity. No. That's the best you can do. If there were a better word for gravity, that's the one we'd use. So what's the sense in looking up a word that's already the best word? You've got to teach the kid that gravity does certain things. That's called an operational definition. You try to teach operational definitions. You get into class and you say, now today children, I'm going to tell you that gravity does the following things. Tomorrow we'll have a test of what is gravity. And at the end they'll say, Will you please tell us what gravity is so we can answer the question of the test. It is simply not possible to define something operationally. You have to feel it. You have to look at the word and have a certain feeling. How do you do that? You can't do it. You can't only live it. Teaching proceeds, I'm convinced after 30 years, by osmosis. It soaks into the kid's hide. It doesn't go by definition. He sees you getting excited and he says, gee, it looks like fun. And he goes home and says, I would've had fun like that. study a thing because you see somebody else enjoying it. And if you get up in front there and better and adorn it, you can be sure that the student is going to say, that's a terrific thing. I'm going to go into that. I just found out from Margaret last week that our daughter graduated from Cornell here as a limnologist. I didn't even know what that was. It's a terrific job as of this week. Why? Because in the seventh grade, right, she had fun looking through a microscope and said, I want to do more of that. Now she's a research science scientist near Boston for toxic waste disposal in industry as a secretary. She went to work last Monday. I said, "What am i going to tell my secretary to do. She's 35 no only twenty two. That really hit it on the head you kids, on you don't teach. They teach
1: themselves.
0: you got got them excited. And if you think it's boring, and I have to say that every day when I get in that classroom, if I find it boring. They sure are If I'm putting myself to sleep, they're all going to sleep. you got to psych yourself up. I imagine having a wind-up that back there when I walk the classroom. It's harder and harder to do. Now, <laughs> I brought a few of those line up toys along and get to later.
1: Here are the steps of scientific method, remembering that they're not
0: really steps, but if you run around all day and follow a scientist, sooner or later, you'll hit all these places. Number one. Write on the
1: right.
0: There's one on the other side, I thought there was.
1: You've got to have a problem. You say it's obvious.
0: It's connected. GE has its research lab, and there's a sign-up in the lab that says, we've got solutions for which we don't even have problems. <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many people in life appear busy, but you ask them what it is they're trying to do, and they can't really put it in the work. Unless you can put it into work, what you're trying to answer in science, you haven't started the process. You have to be able to define the problem. I'm trying to find out how many teeth a horse has. Now, what's the second thing you do? Do. You search the literature. That usually means look in your The idea that the textbook contains all knowledge, I think, is another travesty. Unfortunately, <coughs> the antidote that I got when I took a methods course, I remember it was so horror, is that the prof said, don't use a textbook. Write your own teaching units. That goes fine for about one week. <laughs> <laughs> then you run out of time.
1: And you haven't had time to
0: write the next teaching unit. Then you wish you had a textbook. Pretty soon, the next year, you use one. It's a stopgap, isn't it? Somebody else wrote the teaching units. Well, if you're using one, don't be ashamed of it. Teach it, page by page. As a textbook writer, I'll tell you that one horror we go through is people who write and say, I always start with chapter 23, then I go back to chapter 2, then I go to chapter 5. What would you suggest? I would suggest <laughs> that you go through after a few other things, go do through the book from front to back and not the other way around, because you're written in a certain procedure, and you're not showing anybody how intelligent you are, how much thinking you're doing by rearranging it and saying, well, I'm really doing my own thing. Don't apologize. All right, now we've got another thing to do. And this is the hardest thing a scientist ever is called upon to do. He has to think. He has to think up an answer to the problem. Some people can't do that. Two people may have the same training in science and are faced with the same assignment. One can think up to the answer and the other one can. Right there, is where genius comes from. genius is the you think of an answer before you bring it up. That's called a hypothesis. And what is a it hypothesis? It's a impossible answer to your problem. Why is it necessary? Because if you don't have a hypothesis, then from there on out, Your research is unorganized. So hypothesis is a guess. It's a guess about something that has not yet been answered. And because you have a certain guess now, you're going to try to prove your hypothesis. that's the fortune. You try to prove your hypothesis. How do you do that? You do it by testing your hypothesis. You assume it to be true, and see where it leads, and then go out in the world and see if it leads. And then wherever you test it, that's a laboratory. You look at the sky, that's a laboratory. You look at the test, you're in chemistry. You look in the ocean, you're in biology. Wherever you check out your hypothesis, that's a laboratory. If it checks out again and again, then you advance at one rank, you call it a the theory, and if it keeps checking up, you advance it one more ring, you call it a principle. And that's as far as you're going. Nothing in science ever proceeds beyond a scientific principle. Because nothing can ever be checked out an infinite number of times. Therefore, nothing in science is ever true. All <laughs> false. Any one fact. That's a bad word to use right there. See, what I'm not going to say is not true either. This is a very frustrating thing. There are scientists who, after several years, can't take it anymore, not ever finding anything out. But if they get paid for it, that's what they're supposed to do. Always skeptical most important attitude of the scientist is to be skeptical, especially of the things you do. Your own hypothesis. As one scientist told me, one thing can prove any theory wrong, but no number of events, however many, will ever prove right. I remember in the World's Fair, the Chrysler had an exhibit on there was a display made of car parts, bumpers, exhaust pipes, all the of it, of monsters, and they were snorting and everything. And the kids came up, and there was a sign up here, and it said, This monster breathes fire, but only when nobody is looking. statement to be false. You would see kids going up there, and they would, on the corner of their eye, they would look to see if there's fire coming out of this. And other kids say, no, well, we can't do that, because you are looking. And I say, well, maybe there's a mirror here. Oh, so you're looking in the mirror. I tell my kids that in class. What could they do? Well, one, they get very sophisticated, so you can promise they don't. We can put a microphone or a camera, or some other sophisticated device and you tell them, well, all you're doing is telling me there are different ways of looking There is no way you can prove that statement false, because the only way you can check something out is to look at it in some extension of our senses, some device, that record an event. And if that event checks out with the hypothesis, that monster is breathing fire, then we accept it as a principle. We do not use in modern textbooks any longer the word scientific law. There is no law of gravity. Because a law suggests that something is true. All we ever call something in books today, through these books, is the principle of gravity. Kepler's Newton's principles of motion, because later somebody's going to find a better one. Always leave your tracks open. Never close the door on new knowledge. One man I talked to was Hubert Elliott, probably the greatest chemistry professor in the world. He's at Princeton University and he's a devout Christian. In a seminar tomorrow I give out a statement of Hubert is a he worker in the classroom. He was a speaker at a conference like this in Philadelphia years ago, and he transfixed the people with his tricks that proved his Christian faith. The Hubert Elliott told me that when he goes into the classroom, the first day, he tells the student that the universe is made up of matter, energy, and blurbs. The kids are writing. Somebody tell a freshman from a senior. If you go into a freshman college class and say good morning, they say good morning. If you go into a senior class, they write it down. They thought that was kind of true. <laughs> they take notes. Anyhow, they're writing matter and Blurts? Dr. what are blurts? Well, blurts haven't been invented yet. Or discover. And why are you telling us about blurbs? Because 25 years from now, blurbs are going to be discovered. And then you will say, Good old Allier. He left the door open for blurbs, and he was right. And if I had told you that everything is made up of matter and energy, they would say, Well, Allier, remember that dumb guy we had? told us there was only matter and energy, and now we know better. Science is the very subject where we're supposed to have kids keep an open mind, and yet what we do is give them a textbook so that when they get home, they'll say, if you want to know something, look in here, it says, it says. Same thing they did with the horse's teeth, only now, instead of Aristotle, we're quoting Einstein and Pasteur, and therefore it must be true. The very opposite of what Einstein and Pasteur tried to teach. So, the last step, the last thing a scientist does, which he never finishes doing, is doubting everything he reads and studies. No, that is not meant to say. That is not serious. People come and ask me, "Do I believe in the theory of evolution?" That's usually what people want to know. So they know which side I am. I brought a pamphlet over there. You can pick up on which side I am. And see, the thing you have to do now is defuse this question because they don't want to know about evolution. They want to know about you judge me, not evolution. So I tell them, I don't believe in the theory of evolution, or in the theory of gravity, or in the theory of sunshine, or any other theory you think of. Now we have changed the path. What do you mean you don't believe in everything? I mean, son, that you don't believe in a theory. You study it. You believe in love. Motherhood, and whatever else your particular sense of values are, or in the Bible as the Word of God, these things are absolute because they are not provable. Thank God. To prove means to establish something as probably true. That's what scientific proof is. To check it out. And if it checks out, it may be true. But never say that this is what I believe. It would be very embarrassing, as some people do, well-meaning Christians, to thank God for the law of gravity when it doesn't exist. That's putting God in a rather embarrassing position because now he's faced with the problem of teaching you what really is the case. It's nice to be thankful, but what you should be thankful for is that God gives us the inquisitiveness and the ability to investigate the universe, not to thank him for our particular prejudices for one truth or the other. So that's what scientists do, and none you know. of them Perfectly. Some succeed better than others. The third point is that science is not scientism. When modern science from the time of Bacon until the 19th century, went to work on the principles of the universe, so many useful things came out of it, so many inventions and the Industrial Age and a whole lot of other things resulted from it, that people thought it would eventually replace other methods of arriving at truth. And the church, particularly, which was embarrassed a few times, like Galileo saying the earth moved the church and no houses, and Galileo was turned off as more correct than who the church was, then the was joke. And there were those who said the church must always be fighting a rear guard action. Science is always going to make inroads on what the church believes. While well, that belief that science can replace other methods of arriving at truth is called scientism. Another name for it is humanism, that the human mind eventually can become the arbiter of all truth. If that were true, then things should be getting better and better and better in this world instead of worse and worse and worse. science is what we should learn. Scientism is a clever form of atheism. And I can tell you, from listening to people in conferences on this topic, that there is a real warfare between humanists and the church. And if we're not careful, and if we don't speak out and be a little less timid, on the way in which we view truth. Humanism may well overrun this country before we're aware of it, because
1: humanists write more
0: textbooks than Christians do. As I read the Bible, we're not supposed to sit there and just bemoan the fact that the devil is at work. We're supposed to go out there and do battle with them. And I say, isn't it terrible that these bad influences are coming at us science and philosophy and mathematics. We're supposed to be out there and be better at it than the devil is. The main reason I went into science, and this is a good example of what I'm talking about, was that in grade school, in the Lutheran grade school, a very good Lutheran grade school, in Kronkenburg, teachers told me, beware of science. And as a normal human being, and a kid was inquisitive, I wanted to find out why I should beware of this. And I kept studying all I could. And I could never find out what I was supposed to beware of. And I went to college to find out where all the ungodly science professors are. And to my great astonishment, I found a great many science professors who were Christians. But when I got into a philosophy course, or into a social studies course, there I met the advanced and I wish my teachers had told me, beware what's all the I got into a course of Northwestern Adolescent Psychology. And the first day, the prof gets up and says, I have three degrees in theology, and I'm here to prove to you that Christianity is nonsense. I thought, what does that have to do with adolescent psychology? I never did find out, but he was there to make fun of the Christians and one brave soul, a classmate of mine in the reports, got up and said, I was bang this. I don't know what grade he got. But that's where the greater danger is. I find that a greater percentage of the world scientists believe in God than it is the percentage among psychologists, for But scientism is a real and present danger. Well, I'm going to use the last five minutes for point four. We're going to have a little example. I mean, in science is supposed to be doing things, not just talking. Science is doing. That's mean cookbook doing, where you get up and say, "Class, everybody, take test tube in right hand. Everybody, pour liquid." Every painter who comes out of there and says, "Well, why doesn't he tell us in the first place?" what is supposed to happen, and then have a lot of time. See, there is an approach like that, that the student is supposed to discover everything for himself, and that this is how he discovers it, by doing what you say, coming out of the right engine. Well, there's a little parable about that. A teacher one time wanted to show that his class really knows I want you to use this device and find out how tall this building is. Well, the device he gave it was a barometer. Very tricky. How tall is a building looking at this barometer? So he went to the top of the building and tied a string to it and let it down and measured the string. And he got the height of the building for the nearest inch. He went back to the teacher and said, this is how high the building is, and the teacher said, wrong. what do you mean wrong? That's not the way I wanted you to find it. Well, I Try it right again. He kept on doing all kinds of things. In one instance, he even put a stopwatch, and he dropped the ground down. <laughs> and he timed it. He used Galileo's formulas to find out how fast it fell. Now the whole thing is a mess. <laughs> And finally, and this was the greatest work of genius of all, he went to the janitor and he said, I have this thing, it's in bad shape, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you this, if you tell me how tall this building. (laughs) Now which of these answers was the most ingenious, or which was really the most ingenious way of learning, teacher's method, manager's method? Or should they act on it all cookbook style? You each on a barometer, read barometer, go off there, and see it again. You might as well tell them the trick. So what I'm gonna do now is use a trick, and this is not I call them tricks. In class I do tricks because if it doesn't work, it's a trick. They call them tricks. <laughs> and also I want the class to know that just because I do something. I don't necessarily know whether it's going to work the same way it has all the other times, Because quantum mechanics today says that when you drop a chalk, you don't really know. There is no law of gravity that says that this chalk must fall down. The best we can do is say that every time we drop a chalk, so far,
1: we have observed
0: that it falls down. Now, if I would let go of this thing and it would go up, I'd have to write that down and so say, it went up. Then I'd go out and meet somebody and say, I'd like to enter this into the scientific record. that I dropped the chalk and went up.
1: A <laughs> quantum mechanics
0: says, that's that one rare instance, that miracle. Scientists believe in miracles being things that don't happen like they usually do. There
1: was a miracle
0: in there and it went up. Other scientists would say, oh, there's a better chance that the guy is crazy. <laughs> because there are a lot more crazy people than Huff Trout. Frustrating. Frustrating, because we are always dealing in probabilities. Uh, not from I'm all this wisdom. There's a whole box of these, I took this for myself years ago, but there is one, you can buy this on a box of tricks. Observation, sir very carefully because I'm going to ask you later what happened. Put that ball on there, and I turn this thing on. Ah. Now, first we're going to see what happened, and then we're going to make up principles for it by checking out various the theories. We never asked the question, why did it happen? The reason it happened is didn't. <laughs> we never answered the question, why it best answer to why did this happen is God only knows. <laughs> Absolutely accurate. I don't know why the world is here. Not in a science classroom. It's there because God put it there. I don't even know why people are here by studying science. I'm not even sure if they're here now studying modern physics. There could even be other people sitting in the same place on a different wavelength as far as the that we want. To see.
1: This thing is obviously heavier than air. It's waiting for what? It's heavier than. Does that mean that if we pump the air out of here, it would go up? Here and is
0: that what is happening here?
1: Obviously, when it's here, it's. So
0: we have to give it a broad lighter in there, though. Appears to be very good. good. It appears <laughs> to be lighter. like, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the crazy, like I made. <laughs> Is it weightless here? Suppose when it's up there, you put a bathroom scale under it. Would it have any weight? I told a student that one time, I said, how much do you weigh when you're jumping out the window? I said, well, there's a good way to fight up. <laughs> Get a bathroom scale. Oh, well, that's not that. How about let's use something else. Let's take some books. Yeah, let's take one of your books, he said. Put it on the bathroom scale and throw it out the window. That's what they did. There was this <laughs> bar, The second, this third floor, the second floor, is throws waiting with a camera by the window. And as it went by, she took a picture of the bathroom scale. And you know, to my utter surprise, because what I wanted them to say, when they looked at that picture of the bathroom scale, it didn't weigh anything, right? Do you know that when that book came past the window, it weighed minus five? Because the bathroom scale has to be adjusted to zero, because the top of the scale weighs something.
1: When it went by the window, the book didn't weigh anything, and the
0: scale didn't weigh anything, so
1: it went by you know, that's something
0: I didn't expect at all. So if we would put a scale under here, it would, well, we don't know, do we? We got to do it. We can't do, do it like the horse's teeth. Well, I can't go any farther. You've got to go and do this. Are there any other things we'd better check out? You notice that when I went like this, it still stayed there? Now, well, I painted the thing blue and white so that you can see another thing. It was spinning when it was this way, but not spinning straight up. And over this way, it spun the other direction. This is a pretty smart little thing. It knows which way to spin I'll tell you this little secret. If you know what's responsible for this ball staying up and spinning, you can explain Seaver's curveball. You can explain why airplanes stay up. Guys like Bernoulli, who was one of the great scientists of the 18th century, put their minds to it. Another scientist by the name of Venturi, a philosopher by the name of Le Chatelier. And that's who I'm going to end up with because I'm very profound. I almost profound pressure. Now it's almost stationary. Now I go over here. Woo! It's <laughs> a <laughs> <The> trick. <laughs> <laughs> you can do this with a vacuum cleaner beach ball. I can clean around on end beach balls to up, some people put that in throw in the store. Well, we don't have much time left. We have enough to work on here for a long time. Try and figure out how to weigh this thing. Why doesn't it fall off? Why does it jiggle around and stay in the center? Well the best explanation, I'll shortcut this a little bit for the end of the story today. Whenever a child is faced with a question in science on many tests, The best way to think about it is to say that whenever you do something in the universe, the universe always fights back in order to undo what you did to it. The universe doesn't want to be bothered. And when you tilt it like this, that ball is going to do all it can to stay up there. And all it can do is spin, and it's going to spin in the direction that will increase the force from underneath and decrease it from on top. So it's up there. When you go over here, it'll spin in the direction that will make the force bigger there. <coughs> this is called Le Chatelier's principle. It explains why, when a person is skating on the ice, the water forms under the ice skates, so he couldn't skate. you're skating on water because so when you push on the ice. The ice says, I don't like this pushing. I'm gonna get smaller. And the only way it can get smaller is to turn the water. So it turns the water and you skate on it. And after you're over skating, it forms back into ice. And you say, It may water the world. But you're saying that ice and all this stuff has all those brains to do that? Where in the world did all that wisdom come from?
1: I have my seven minutes.